0: Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Crazies, the new remake of a George Romero film. Here with me via Skype is Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. Who is, let's name all your many accomplishments. You are a critic for The Washington Post, contributor Um, to the Vulture blog and to True Slant, and now author of the book Facing Future. Do you want to do a quick explanation of your book?
1: sure it's um a book in the in continuum's 33 and a third series of music criticism about uh israel Kamakov evil ole that gigantic fat guy with the ukulele who sings that version of over the rainbow you heard at the last rehearsal dinner you went to
0: and i'm holding it in my hand right now actually i just got this book you just gave it to me and it's a it's a lovely dainty little little object i love these 33 and a third books i can't wait to read it um Pleasing little illustrations, too. And I didn't I didn't have to say his name. Can you say it one more time, Israel?
1: Kamaka Vivo Ole. Okay,
0: I will never, ever say that name. Um, so, Dan, the crazies. We didn't see it together. I don't really know what you thought of it. Before we get into spoiling, do you want to just give me a quick reaction? Do you think that this was a worthwhile remake, or should it have been left in the George Romero vaults?
1: Uh, I mean, it's worthwhile sort of on its own terms, in the sense that if you uh, are a 19-year-old hoping to take your girlfriend to a movie that will make her jump and then make out with you later, it's fine. Um, If you are looking for a real paranoid, down-and-dirty, Romero-esque horror movie, you will be sorely disappointed, but hopefully you're not looking for that.
0: It's true. It is kind of hard to know exactly what the audience would be, because those people that are going to say, hey, George Romero's The Crazies have been remade, you know, I'm signing up for that are going to definitely be disappointed, but that's going to be such a small segment of the film going audience. I think even people who are George Romero fans don't necessarily remember the crazies. It was a pretty minor one.
1: Right. And those people will likely be disappointed, but people who see it just because they want a a halfway decent horror movie with some good scares will be, I, I think perfectly satisfied. Um, even as they perhaps wish that this was a little bit more thoughtful.
0: Yeah, I should mention this is written by a guy who specializes in remakes of classic cheapo horror movies. He, This is the guy who wrote the Amityville Horror, the new Amityville Horror, which I didn't see, who wrote the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The idea of remaking that movie is just one of the most absurd trips into nostalgia I can imagine. And um, I guess everything he's written, it looks like, has been somewhat of a horror movie. He wrote that movie, The Machinist, which everybody knows is the Christian Bale movie where Christian Bale lost 80 pounds or something. I couldn't bring myself to see that because the way he looked in the trailers was just so horrifying. But So this guy's specialty is essentially... Um, nostalgic visits to schlock. And I thought he did a pretty good job at it. But the, the affect this movie generates is is not really what you go to a horror movie for. It's almost like comfort food. It's a nostalgic, kind of sweet horror movie, which isn't to say that it doesn't have scares and laughs. It has a lot of each. But if you're looking for that experience, that raw, dangerous experience of, you know, the the early 70s schlock horror movie, it's it's definitely not there.
1: Right. If you're looking for the kind of movie that won't make your girlfriend want to make out with you afterwards, this is not it.
0: I didn't realize, actually, that horror movies were a big date make-out ploy, oh, yeah. but it makes sense.
1: Uh, oh, no. I mean, the whole point of a horror movie, I always assumed, was that so you have a reason for you to clutch each other on right. your date, right. um, and then perhaps that leads somewhere later. Um, and the old traditional telling, of course, then you park on a narrow winding road, and you're making out in the back of the car, and then the guy with the hook comes.
0: Has there been a scene in a horror movie where kids in a horror movie are, have, are stalked by a slasher, like at a drive-in or something? There has Surely to
1: that happened in one of the Scream movies.
0: It has to have happened.
1: Yeah. So so let's go back to the crazies. Um, so let's, the, let's,
0: just get, let's just plod through the story here quickly and, and spoil whatever we
1: can. Sure. So um, it's set in uh, the town of Ogden Marsh, Iowa, um, unlike the original, which it was, of course, set in small town Pennsylvania, as that's where George Romero sets everything. Um, but uh, it's a farming town And we um, meet the sheriff uh, David Dutton Who's played by um, Timothy Olyphant um, And his wife Judy Who's played by Rada Mitchell um, Really she, good
0: casting I should mention, right? I mean, for if, if nothing else Physically, these two Definitely evoke the type That would be in the oh, Old-time yeah. schlock horror movie And they're really good
1: Well, and Rada Mitchell Has sort of made a career Out of becoming that woman About being the woman Who sort of alternately Screams and gets tough In a whole series Of sort of not exactly great, but not terrible horror movies. Um, she's a doctor. She's a, um, a like the town doctor. She's also pregnant, um,
0: but invisibly pregnant, which is sort in, of interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's still hot, Roda Mitchell. Don't worry, everyone. Um, but so they, uh, a series of events start overtaking the town in which people behave a little bit weird and then behave really weird and then become murderous and it starts with a uh townsman on a who invades a high school baseball game with a shotgun and um sheriff dutton shoots him dead before he can shoot anyone else um and then a guy who lives right near that guy in another farmhouse um goes mad locks his family his uh wife and his son in a closet and then sets the house on fire um and Sheriff Dutton soon puts together that all this is tied to a military plane that uh, crashed in the local swamp. Um, about a week ago, which is now leaking something into the water supply. So people who live closest to the swamp are being affected first, and people who live further away as the contagion spreads are being affected later. Yeah, um, they must have a
0: pretty slow water flow in that town because they seem very confident that if you live down the street from the guy who just got the crazies, you still have you know, days to get away. This is, right. this is a weakness in the movie, I think, is that it's never really clear what the progress of this malady is or what the terms of the contagion are, which right. is effectively scary for the first hour or so, but I needed the scene of, you know, the bogus scientist coming in and explaining, or some sort of exposition, not because it scientifically matters, but because I want to know how scared to be about the contagion spreading quickly to the major characters.
1: Right, and to know also, to have some... some thematic coherence to how the contagion affects its characters. One of the flaws of the movie, I thought, was that it seems to affect everyone differently. Certainly everyone murders people who gets the contagion, but um, they do it in different ways and in ways that don't necessarily make sense. For example, one guy just sort of silently stalks across a baseball field with a shotgun and looks intense and maybe is going to shoot someone. Whereas another guy, diabolically lures his <laughs> wife and son into a trap, locks them in a closet, spreads gasoline ever, everywhere, lights a match, and then mows his lawn while his house burns to ashes. Yeah, you're and right. Are... Some
0: of them put a lot of planning and, and like cognitive power into their murders, and others, as you said earlier, just punch dumpsters as hard as they can and right. kind of revert to animalism.
1: Right, and some become incoherent, basically zombies, whereas others formulate plans and can't wait to get back at the people who um who did them wrong in a, in the previous life and so i found it frustrating that i didn't get any sense necessarily of of what the what the contagion does to you it makes your nose bleed it sort of turns you into a freaky looking creepazoid but what does it do to you how does it make you crazy and why does it have something to do with your former personality there is a scene where some guys who we saw duck hunting early in the movie sort of turn into people hunters under the influence of the craziness disease which is great i love the idea that maybe the contagion takes the traits you already had and, um, and drives them out of control <laughs> but then later so, we so you see and I
0: would review people to death if we got right, the exactly we
1: would we would harshly criticize them to death <laughs> but then later there's a you know there's a scene where the high school principal um does not do anything principally at all. He actually just stabs people with a pitchfork, which is not a natural outcropping <laughs> of his personality, as know far as I can tell. I know you went to
0: elementary school, but right. that sounds pretty principally to me.
1: Right. But in general, I just found that a slightly frustrating aspect of this movie, that um, as the contagion um, spreads and as the town goes crazy, we don't ever get a sense of, of what to expect. And so when, um, to spoil the movie a little further, Sheriff Dutton's best friend and deputy, uh, Russell Clank, who's played by the British actor Joe Anderson and who's part of their merry trio of runaways trying to escape the town and the contagion um, when he gets sick uh, with the with the Crazies virus. Um, He becomes a little bit off-kilter. He, at one point, threatens them. Um, You can see that he's struggling with it, but then at the end, he gives himself up in a moment of heroic sacrifice, even though he has this disease, which seems, like, insane. Like, it makes no sense compared to everything else we've seen that he would have this kind of self-control and moral certitude that everyone else in the town lacked. So when one guy gets the disease, he kills his wife and kid, but when another guy gets the disease he sacrifices himself for the good of his friends like that makes no sense right, at all
0: yeah you're right, and, and, and the moment that Russ gets the crazies, I mean, is essentially sort of the moral turning point of the movie, because, a, a, another spoiler, the wife and husband, Roda Mitchell and Timothy Oliphant, never do get the right. crazies, right? I mean, the, the typical invasion of the body snatchers logic would be that the couple itself would be riven at some point by one of them getting the crazies and the other one has to decide As what to do. As happens in the, the original cli-
1: Romero movie, when the, when the wife gets the crazies and the husband has to decide what to do about her.
0: Right, and so, which makes the Romero movie in the end much, much darker than this one. But but as close as it gets to the inner circle in this movie is that is that Russ, who really has been this great character who's saved their lives, you know, three or four times with the most impossible, unexpected sniper shot on a crazy, you know, from out of frame. When he gets it, and then he suddenly, as you say, is in this completely different kind of decline. It starts to undermine the very notion of what the crazies is and, and make it less scary, effectively.
1: Right. Why don't we take a break here to uh, to uh, for a word from our sponsor?
0: Good idea so uh we'll start off with our recommendation as you know we're sponsored by audible.com the uh, purveyor of audiobooks on the internet and um we found a, a perfect accompaniment for um for this week's show which is the michael Crichton novel the andromeda strain which you've read it and i haven't dan do you want to talk about it it's also about a contagion and
1: right well it's uh, it's i mean it's Crichton's uh excellent version basically of the epidemic pandemic story and um uh, many people are familiar with the um, movie version of it, which came out in 1971 and is, in fact, sort of a, a cultural corollary uh, uh, to Romero's movie. It's, they both come from that same early 70s era of paranoid horror and paranoid thrillers. Um, they both are sort of pleasingly low-budget uh, thrillers that attack this issue, but also give it a real 70s um Countercultural spin. They both are very um, concerned with the not only the pandemic but with the response to the pandemic in a way that um, this current version of the crazy seems less sort of um, sort of culturally aware. Uh, but it's uh, narrated by Chris Noth. Um, I love the idea of his um, dulcet tones <laughs> wrapping their way around Michael Crichton's monosyllabic prose. Um, and uh, it's a fun book, and I think it would be uh, totally worth a listen if you are into the story of society's collapse.
0: All right. And so, as you know, as regular listeners know, we have a deal with Audible, where if you go to our webpage, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you can sign up for a membership and get a free book, which you get to hold on to even if you don't decide to keep your membership. So let's get back to the crazies.
1: Um, We talked a little bit about uh, the ways that this is different than the Romero original. And one of the main ways that we talked about is that it isn't nearly as dark, which is to say, even though it's a horror movie, and even though it has people killing people everywhere, and even though it has a twist at the end, which we'll reveal later, um, that reveals that maybe our heroes aren't as safe as they thought they were, it still, in a lot of ways, reinforces sort of the the positive aspects of community, especially in that character of Russell and the way he sacrifices himself so that his friends can get past a military checkpoint. Um, The original Romero movie was as concerned with the, the damage that healthy people could do as in the damage that crazy people could do the government and the military, the townspeople who are riven with paranoia, um, that they might get sick or that their neighbors might be sick, and in sort of the ultimate sick joke of the original crazies, um, a, a father-daughter team who are on the run with our heroes, a fireman and his nurse wife, are get the illness and actually succumb to their incestuous desires uh, before they're killed off. And uh, it's a much darker vision of this story than This vision of the story. um, And it made me wonder why this story didn't sort of use the fears of our own time the way that story used the fears of that time. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: I think there must have been, I mean, somebody like Scott Kosar, the guy who wrote this, who obviously knows so much about old school horror movies, has to have made that a deliberate choice. I'm sure that he knows that he's not making a movie that's as, as dark, as paranoid, as disturbing as the original Romero movies, and that he's making plot choices that make that the case. And I, and I just wonder why that is. I mean, is it is it just simply because he's not interested in making a political allegory? If you think about George Romero's big movies, which are the Night of the Living Dead movies, they're all about the decay of the fabric of society. In fact, they, they function more as sort of allegories for late 60s social decay than they do as horror movies. You know, it's almost, it's almost hard to be scared by them at times because you're so busy thinking about whatever allegory they bring up. And, and this movie is just completely uninterested in that, which it's, 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 it's utterly entitled to be. But I mean, it makes it a lot less complex how it emotionally operates on the viewer
1: right i mean it glances a tiny tiny bit at the at this notion of sort of anti-government sentiment that exists in the united states today in the sense that we have all these middle americans um a major plot point is that the town is quarantined and the military helicopters in Um, and we get a few brief scenes of you know the citizenry being herded onto trucks and barcoded just like the number of the beast and um and then you know a couple of them break out and try to escape but it's really i mean that's really sort of the end of it we it, we we have this idea that spy satellites are overhead constantly watching our characters but it never really becomes a major issue and much and instead we basically get sort of a road trip with our three heroes trying to make their way to the safety of Cedar Rapids um and it certainly doesn't have the darkness of the Romero movie i mean i guess if i had to guess it would be that when scott kozar was told to write the screenplay you know, someone at the studio said, "Okay, don't make it too dark or too Romero-y," and he said, "Okay, thank you for my life." <laughs> right. Line. I mean, honestly, that's that's my guess. I don't know. I'm sure that Scott Kozar is probably a huge fan of the original Crazies, and maybe if he had his choice, he would have made this a lot darker and um, and political of a movie, but I'm sure that any studio worth its salt today would say, do not do that under any circumstances. Right. Well, I think
0: they, I'm sure, had a huge interest in keeping this movie under budget, because you know who it was directed by, right? It was directed by Michael Eisner's son, who's also named yes, Michael, Eisen- Michael Eisner, right? But who goes by Breck, I guess, so he won't yeah. be Michael Eisner Jr., and who directed Sahara, which was a notorious, utter financial disaster for for its studio. I think more because it went over budget than because no one saw it. I mean, I think it was, it was fairly successful at the box office, but was, you know, Heaven's Gate style, over budget in 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 the production, right. so i'm sure that right. Breck Eisner was being kept on a very tight leash in terms of you know how much he could he could spend on this movie and it's sort
1: of it's well that is that is one of the pleasures of the movie is that he does. He does do a pretty good job on a tight budget. He does a lot with surprise. He does a lot with the great horror movie shots of people lurking in the background. He makes a lot of hay out of um, casting milk toasty actors, then covering them in blood and giving them axes and pitchforks and making them do horrible things. Well,
0: whoever gets cast as the various crazies in the town are all great. They manage to find a lot of people. It's not just through makeup either. They manage to find a lot of people who have this similar look. This sort of, I mean, right. I would sort of describe it as like a, a grizzled rocker, kind of, sort of like a Hell's Angel type guy or something. (laughs) All these sort of guys with gray ponytails and sad, saggy eyes, and they look perfect as the crazies. Just slap a little bit of gray makeup on them, and they're good to go.
1: Right. Um, And the the biggest spoiler, which we can give away as well, uh, and the best low-budget moment of the movie, is um, the really, really crappy nuclear explosion, um, which at the end wipes the town off the map just as... uh, Um, Sheriff Dutton and his wife are driving away in in a purloined semi-truck and it really is one of the least convincing nuclear explosions (laughs) I've seen on film in a long time
0: and I love the fact that they just barely manage to drive out of the the, the zone, right? The, the the explosion zone. They're literally just stepping on it so they can get away from the nuclear explosion, and it works. It's great.
1: And of course it works. But then they they their truck is wrecked. They climb out. They're okay. We see them walking towards Cedar Rapids, and then the last shot of the movie is is uh, a a surveillance spy cam shot of them walking, which which. Uh, pans out into a much larger picture of the whole area. We see Cedar Rapids in the dis- in the distance, and then we see a computer readout that says, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, initiate quarantine procedure, so we know that Cedar Rapids will be next. But
0: to me, that didn't necessarily seem like the knell of doom for them, because we've seen how tough they are. It was almost more like the, the setup to a sequel, where they then have to esca- escape yet another you know, case of the crazies. Can I talk about...
1: I hope they call it the crazies to escape from Cedar Rapids.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Urban Harvest. Right. Can I just talk about my favorite gag? There was one moment that actually could have been in a Romero movie, the way Romero would just think of incredibly imaginative, awful things that people could do to each other. And there's a moment when um, the the doctor and his, the, I'm sorry, there's a moment when the, what the, the, is the guy, the sheriff? Sheriff. There's a moment when the sheriff and his wife are attacked by a pair of crazies in their house, and one of the crazies drives a knife through his hand, pinning it to the floor. Do you remember this?
1: Oh, yeah. And, uh, that was gross.
0: It, and so that part alone is really gross. We get lots of close-ups of his impaled hand. But if you're afraid of gore, actually, I would, I should say you shouldn't be afraid of this movie, because it's pretty fake-looking and comic kind of gore. There's not a lot that's really that hard to stomach in it, compared to, you know, a, a sadistic Saw-type movie or something. But right, anyway, right. his hand is pinned with his, with his knife to the floor, and... After he finally manages to essentially just just pull his hand out of with the knife still in it, right? He's like walking around now with a knife all the way through his hand, and then he goes and stabs this female—I want to say zombie, but female crazy—with the knife still in his hand. It's just this great, unique way of holding a knife. Like, hey, I'll yes. just I'll just impale my hand on it and then use it as a weapon. And right for one audience, brief
1: moment. I've been turned into Wolverine.
0: <laughs> the audience loved it because it, yeah. was, it was a moment that, you know, humor and violence and, and gore kind of came together. And I would have loved a few more moments like that.
1: Right. I wanna, could, uh, We're running out of time, but I want to do a quick call out to Joe Anderson, who um, who's the British actor who played Russell, the deputy, who in a, in a pretty well cast movie, I thought w- was actually pretty exceptional. I mean, I think he, he really looked the part. He's you know, lanky and a little bit goofy looking, he had a terrible handlebar mustache. Um, but he's very handsome and he's very charismatic, and I really liked him a lot in this movie. And he's he was one of the few his performance and the twists that his character takes. Uh, were one of the few things that made me sorry for what this movie wasn't, which is to say he was so good and his sacrifice was so unexpectedly moving considering how unmoving the rest of the movie was that it made me wish that, that this movie had really gone for a little bit more. Um, and I guess that's a that's a compliment to him, though it's not that much of a compliment to the movie.
0: Well, you know, I didn't know he was British, so there's, that's another compliment to him. I had no idea that was a British actor, but I mean, that's typical of the Brits, right? They can just they can right. pass completely unnoticed. But what else has he done, Joe Anderson?
1: He was in um, Across the Universe. That's the only other thing I've ever seen him in.
0: Oh, which I refuse to see. <laughs> I cannot bring myself to see that. I hate Julie Taymor, and I just I don't want to hear those songs Julie Taymorized.
1: Um, but he is, he is really good, and I'm I'm excited about seeing him in more stuff in the future. Uh, Roda Mitchell, I'm sure I will see see again in another movie just like this one year from now
0: i still think of rada mitchell as the the chicken high art who fell in love with ali sheedy i think that may be the last thing i've
1: seen her in. right every movie she's been in since then here i'm going to read her filmography right now (laughs) so her post high art filmography you ready the surrogates uh rogue Mm -hmm. silent hill Mm -hmm. (laughs) man on fire phone booth dead heat when strangers appear pitch black
0: (laughs) so essentially she's been screaming in a dark closet since 1991
1: right she was also in finding neverland so that was her only like non-horrible role but i mean a lot of those are like good sort of b-movie movies phone booth and pitch black especially are really good like b-movie movies but they are not roles that call on the talent that she showed say in high art right Um, but whatever i'm sure she's very happy in her big house
0: all right well dan thank you very much for joining me for this late spoiler special Thanks so much. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.